Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. She helped me see how to face pain. You walk towards it. You don't try and get around it. You don't push it away. You don't turn yourself into somebody who's battling with it. You embrace it and smile at it. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. My first childhood wish is granted. Instantly, I cry out for it to stop. This pain, this pain of the cross is sharp and true, and it is bringing love to birth in me. My eyes refuse to close. They refuse to abandon their steadfast watch upon the crucifix, keeping the pain alive in me, even as it is killing my brother. I choose this. I choose this as heaven this sharp, truthful pain of love, which is the way to love. And as I do so, and my brother Jesu is still dying, still hanging there like a cloth blown in the wind, I see Mary and John and the Magdalene at the foot of the rood. I must draw breath, Thomas. I will tell more, but leave me now to rest here at the foot of the cross with Christ's lovers. That is an excerpt from chapter 23 of a new book called I, Julian, a fictional autobiography about the life and visions of Julian of Norwich. And if you subscribe to the magazine, you might see that we have a feature about it in the November Advent issue. This book is by Dr. Claire Gilbert, and we'll be discussing the book today with its author and discovering why and how she would write such a boldly imaginative book from the perspective of one of Anglicanism's most beloved figures. This past May, actually, was the 650th anniversary of the visions of Julian of Norwich. And so we'll learn a little bit about the actual woman we know as Julian and talk about what life might have looked like in her time in an age of tight-knit communities, mystery plays, and mystical texts, as well as church division, plague, and tectonic societal shifts. We'll also hear about what it's like to inhabit such a powerful voice for so many years of research and writing. And as a fellow fiction writer, I can attest to this, what changed in Claire's life as she did this? 
Before I tell you a little more about Claire, though, I want to thank those of you who've jumped in to support this podcast so that we can get into a podcast studio instead of my living room, and we can keep bringing you conversations like this at a high quality with fantastic guests. So I want to personally thank Sharon, Roger, and John, three new supporters. Join the ranks of these good folks and send us a small monthly pledge. We would so appreciate it. And as it turns out, we actually depend on donations to keep the Living Church healthy and running. Give by clicking the link in the show notes and help us bring onto the podcast people like Dr. Claire Gilbert, our guest today, whom it was such a pleasure to talk with. Claire is founding director of the Westminster Abbey Institute for Ethics and Public Life. She's worked for the Archbishop's Council of the Church of England as policy advisor in medical ethics and environmental issues and is a lay canon at St. Paul's Cathedral. She co-founded the St. Paul's Institute in 2003. She has authored many books. Her latest, the novel I, Julian by Hodder and Stoughton is available now. If you would like to win a free copy of the book, you can enter our TLC book club contest. Click the link in the show notes to enter or go to livingchurch.org and click the pop-up and you can download a free study guide and be entered to win a free copy of I, Julian. Now, get up on your trusty household horse and hold on to your wimple. We are headed out on a beautiful and sometimes intense literary journey today, which will also be a journey of the heart. We hope you enjoy the conversation. I was at Westminster Abbey for the first time this summer. Oh, and it was such a delight. It's just such a thick place. And I completely fell in love with it, just head over heels. I was wondering if you have a love story with Westminster Abbey. Gosh, quite a few, actually. Mm. It's the thing that immediately came into my mind when you asked that question was St. Faith's Chapel, which is, it's only open for private prayer. And it's a little chapel just off the south transept. And it's got the most beautiful wall painting of St. Faith, who's mm. a w- woman with her instrument of torture, as they often did, which is a grid. Which I think she was griddled like St. Lawrence. But it's an exquisite painting and, and the colours are fabulous on the wall. And the floor is also medieval. And for, for many years, when from when I started there at, in 2011 and until COVID, that was where morning prayer was said every single day at half past seven. It's a very, very special, very quiet place because mm. West probably can be quite noisy during the day and it's very busy. So that's a special place for me. And the Lady Chapel is a special place for me because that's oh, where yeah. we do our lectures. And it's it's dedicated to the Order of the Bath. And the people who get honours in the Order of the Bath are public servants. And there's a very arcane ceremony when, when the monarch makes new ones. And I remember watching this and thinking, but this is what it is. And it's very old and dignified. But I felt that it was the Institute was bringing something that was was old and into into the new, like the the parable of the oh the right, steward. the wise steward. Mm-hmm. What a, from his store, what is old and what is new. I've always felt that about what we do at Westminster Abbey because the Abbey is so old and the Institute is so new. It's only ten years old. Well done. <laughs> well, well done, well, Westminster Abbey. <laughs> well, Claire, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. It's my absolute pleasure and privilege. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed your book a great deal. 
I read it on a couple of flights and I had to break out the Kleenex a couple of times and sort of turn away so that my seatmate didn't think that there was something really wrong with me. As someone who's read Julian several times, her voice, her visions have been a real, were a turning point in my spiritual life. That's no exaggeration. Her voice was so convincing. The writing is lovely. The care you took to get into this medieval world and the medieval mindset is, is evident. And just your research and your love for Julian, your respect for her world are so clear. So I just wanted to begin by thanking you for being so careful with such a story. That's really kind. Thank you. And I, and I uh, was so anxious as I was writing it that I, well, I wasn't anxious, but I, I wanted to do justice to the many Julian lovers I knew there were around the world and that they shouldn't be disappointed in my attempt to tell her story in what ha what would has to be called a fictional way because we don't know anything for a fact about her but so it was very much an act of my own creative imagination but it really mattered to me that people who know and love Julian liked what I'd done well then it was also an act of service I'm grateful I'm so grateful for that some of our listeners will be very familiar with Julian you said you have many friends who are and you were trying not to disappoint them but others are going to be completely new to Julian's story when they listen to this interview today I'm wondering what your introduction to Julian of Norwich was. Can you tell us that story? Yes, I was introduced to Julian when I was an undergraduate. I was studying theology at Oxford University, and it's a very dry degree, the Oxford theology degree. I fear this is in the this is a while ago, so this is in the 80s, but I fear it still is quite dry. But I had one term with the medieval mystics. And that was the bright star in those three years of my undergraduate degree, that term. And the bright star in that term was Julian of Norwich. And I have never not been in love with her since. I think the main thing to say about her and why she shone out was that she didn't try to organize God. And you were getting a theology degree at Oxford. Did you sometimes feel that God was trying to be organized for you? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> working out who God is and making it all very neat and systematic. And the one thing we know for sure is if it's coming from us, it's never going to be finally worked out. You're only ever going to see partially. And what was so lovely about Julian, what is so lovely about Julian, is she, she doesn't try and do that. She muses on the meaning of what she's seen, but basically she tells us what she's, she's seen. And where there are contradictions, she doesn't try and sort them out. She sits with the contradictions and sees that maybe she's the one who has to grow, not, not the, she doesn't have to jettison something in order to tidy up her world. Her mind needs to get bigger and her seeing needs to get bigger. That has such, that has such implications for our contemporary life and for, I think, the Anglican communion. I hope to get to that before our conversation ends today. For those who are listening who know nothing about the visions, would you mind taking a moment just to briefly outline what this book is about? What is, what is she saying when she's writing this? The book describes 16 revelations, which were shown to uh, a, a simple creature unlettered, as she calls herself, which is simply not true. She is highly lettered. She just doesn't know very much Latin. In the text, she says, I, when I was a child, I conceived a desire for three wounds, the wound of to come so close to death that she would have all the last rites and that would bring her closer to God, to, to experience the pain of the passion, 
and to have the feeling of contrition, compassion and longing for God. And she says she forgot about the first two completely, that the third one stayed with her continually. <laughs> I love that. When she, yeah, she says, when I was 30 years and a half, I became very ill and I, I was in bed and I was dying from the, my, my legs up. I was numb up to my waist. And a curate came into the room and he stood at the foot of my bed and held up a crucifix. And I, I fixed my eyes on the crucifix and the visions unfolded mainly the playing on the crucifix. Uh, and the book is a description of each of these visions. She, and she tells us what she saw, but she also tells us what she saw in her ghostly sense, she says, physically and also in her spirit, spiritually. And she also muses on these visions and she returns to them. And so the feeling you get when you're reading the text is that she's seeing the visions again as she writes and seeing more that's in them as she writes. And in fact, she says at the end, this book is not yet performed. There's always going to be more to see. Mm. And the other thing she does in the book is she she invites the reader not to look at her, but to look at what she saw. So you're invited into a direct encounter yourself. This is already going to sound strange to some people hearing this. For example, the things that she prays for sounds very medieval. And, and some people don't mean that as a compliment and, <laughs> and sounds a little scary, a little weird. Why would someone pray for something like that? Is this some other form of self-flagellation? And I hope by the end of this conversation that some of those knots can sort of be loosened and, and more understanding can come. But you're right. There's such a profound and very real humility in the way that she writes, which just makes me so glad that you didn't choose to make her a figure, a modern figure who, who sort of self-consciously says, I'm going to be a revolutionary because I've had these visions, et cetera, et cetera. But she's someone who really is just bowled over by these visions of, of the love of God. What impelled you, Claire, then to, to write a novel based on her life? As I said, I was in love with Julian from the time of my undergraduate degree. And eventually I got around to writing a doctorate on her in relation to the ecological crisis. I finished that doctorate and not long after that, I was diagnosed with blood cancer, myeloma. And Julian stopped being a subject of my academic study and became my spiritual companion through two and a half years of really mm. rolling treatment. And I wrote about that. I wrote letters to my friends, which I hadn't intended that they should be published, but they ended up being published. Uh, and Julian featured in these, in these letters all the way through, describing how she helped me. And quite specifically, and this refers to this point about her seeking the pain of the cross, she helped me see how to face pain. You walk towards it. You don't try and get around it. You don't push it away. You don't turn yourself into somebody who's battling with it. You embrace it and smile at it. And even I used to dress up for my chemotherapy sessions <laughs> and make myself porous to what was coming. And in this way, this, the cancer became a source of joy, not a source of bitterness. And I will always be grateful to her for that. As I was coming to the end of the treatment, um, so it's two and a half years, it's quite a long time. I, I can only describe this as hearing a call to tell her story in this, with the same authentic voice that I'd found in writing these letters to my dear friends. I've written other books, but they've been on the whole um, academic or 
their their essays, their arguments. Whereas writing to my friends about what I was going through, I simply spoke from my heart without trying to make it palatable. Mm. And so this this was a call to do this to to tell Julian's story with this voice as an act of homage to her. Now it had to be fictional because we know so little for certain about Julian. We can't even be certain that the author of that text is the woman Anchoress we know existed in the 14th century and early 15th century, because the texts are so much, the manuscripts are so much later. We, it's almost certain that it's, it's, it is she, but we can't be 100% sure. So I turned that into a, into a reason to make this an act of creative imagination. I, I wanted to tell a compelling story. I wanted her visions to make sense to a 21st century audience. I wanted to bring her spirituality more fully into our world. And this was part of the homage to her, if you like, was to ensure that her voice continued to, to ring out. One thing that strikes me immediately about your story, Claire, is that you had blood cancer and these visions of Julian's are so full of blood. They are bloody visions and they're not very palatable. The way she, when she first sees the crucifix and it occurs to her, she's having a vision, the crucifix is bleeding and bleeding. She said, it's like rain overflowing and falling out of the eaves. I mean, this is like Quentin Tarantino, you know, <laughs> this is, this is crazy stuff, but Jesus himself, this sort of gruesome figure on the cross his face is so peaceful and his countenance is so calm as he gazes at her. And this is sort of the first thing that locks her into this vision. Is that something that struck you as well? Is, is this connection with her vision of his blood and your own experience with blood cancer? Heavens, yes. Uh, the thing about the blood, having blood cancer is, so your blood is in every part of your body, it's not like a tumor that's going to be cut away. Your blood is in every part of your body and it brings life, as well as now for me, cancer, which is death. And so I had this extraordinary internal physical contradiction, if you like. And so I took myself into my blood and sort of flowed with it. And I, I, saw, I imagined Christ there as well. I, I, I just loved it as it flowed and said to it, you don't have to keep producing extra cells. You're beautiful and wonderful just as you are. If, if, it's, if the cancer is in every part of your body because it's in your blood, you can't hate it because that will be like hating your own body. And so I knew that I had to do this with love, not with wanting to get rid of it. Although, that, of course, that's what one hopes for. And that's what the chemotherapy was for. But it was somehow this, this, this bloodiness. And, and also, you know, she, she talks about God making water available for, for humanity to, to use, to drink and to, to wash. But he, he, uh, Christ's blood is, is better. And I, refl I reflected on it and I have to drink six pints of water a day to keep it, everything moving. I have to, I had to be hydrated. I, there was blood from the taking blood each week before having a chemotherapy. There was blood in the cannula to make sure it was working. And then hydration after the, after the chemotherapy, just so much blood and so much water. Mm. And I took it as a, as a, as a symphony, a beautiful symphony, a Eucharistic symphony, like the blood and water in the Eucharistic chalice that I was being given. 
and and so it became this exquisite meditation and it all really came out of the the blood and the water in Julian's in Julian's visions mm, that's just lovely well blood and water are also part of childbirth and i think that's something that you tie in beautifully in your book and you choose to make Julian a wife and a mother and can i ask you about that how did you why did you make that that choice I was very much guided by the text and the text tells us that when she was very ill and she had these visions, she was in a bedroom in a house with her mother, with her maid and the curate. She wasn't present with an infirmarian. It clearly wasn't a monastery. She clearly wasn't a nun. So that's one thing from the text we know. We also know from the text that she was highly competent in English. She had liturgical Latin, but her English was, was fluent. Indeed, remarkable, remarkably poetic. But she, so, she, so she certainly knew how to write. And there are resonances of other texts there, so, which implies that she knew how to read. And from my research and from what others have written about Julian, it certainly could be the case that if she were a householder, she would know how to read and write. She would need to know how to read and write to keep the accounts. But also, again, in the text, there seems to be such a profound understanding of motherhood, the way she talks about Christ as mother, as God as mother. I, I, I felt that she knew what, what that felt like, but also the pain, of, the pain of that kind of love, the love of a mother. Mm. It is unconditional and it's intensely painful because of what you suffer on behalf of your beloved. And of course, this is very much evident in, in the way she describes her encounters with Christ. Mm. So as she starts to sense, before she even has these visions, she starts to sense God's presence in her life in a particular way and a calling to contemplative prayer. But she also is a wife and a mother and has some tension in her marriage. And this comes to a major crisis. I'm not going to give a spoiler in which let's just say she gains a moment of contemplative freedom at the expense of unknowingly leaving her husband and daughter in a terrible situation at home. So this struggle between domestic responsibilities and vocation, I think this is going to be very relatable to our listeners who are mostly clergy and lay leaders. Do you know something about this as well? I mean, <laughs> and what do you think you've learned something from Julian and other women like her about this struggle? Well, this is very much my my imagining of what happened to Julian. Again, I think it's entirely plausible. And I think that every everyone who carries great responsibilities, domestic or otherwise, who who yearns for some inner time. And I'm not talking, well, maybe I am talking about me time. We have this phrase, me time. And maybe that is what I'm talking about. But this was a very deep longing in Julian to study, to be alone to reflect, to go within herself, calling inwards. And it, and there was no time for it. And, and Martin, her husband, doesn't really like seeing her reading a book. There are always other duties to be done. He's a busy merchant and she has to play her part. And, and Laura, her daughter, is fractious and wants her attention. And ev I mean, everything that we would all recognise today. And isn't it also the case that we have this experience that when you finally do say, I cannot take any more, if I am to continue in this role, I have to take myself away for a bit and find myself again. And I will return and I will serve as mm. much as I can thereafter. But I must do this thing. 
when Julian does this thing and comes back and everything goes has gone wrong. And of so, of course, the feeling is it's all her fault. Now, we would say, and this is this is, again, so much our experience. We would say to each other, it's not your fault. And whatever happened would have happened anyway. The world does not sit upon your shoulders. But the experience is of a terrible mistake. You had to be on call all the time. And look what happens when, when you're not. And so you feel guilty, even if a rational bit of you says you shouldn't. You still feel it. And we, we absolutely feel that today, all of us. Yeah. Anyone and then the particular kinds of pressures of people in Christian leadership where that guilt or that shame is spiritualized so that it's right. I'm being selfish. I should be serving, you know, the kingdom, you know, that sort of thing. And then that gets really tricky. It is. But we all know when we're on, we're facing the person who's like that. Right. We want them to go and have that rest. Now, I do a lot of work with members of parliament, elected representatives, and they have the same problem. They think their time is not their own. Mm. And the thing is, they say, well, virtue, it wins no votes. So I say, anyone I meet, I say, will you write to your member of parliament and tell them you want them to look after their own souls because it will make them better leaders? It's it's desperately, desperately important, but we, we perhaps we don't tell each other enough how important it is. Well, then but also what's remarkable about this and is remarkable about God's love is that in this story, even her misapprehension of what she's done and the choice that she's made to follow a contemplative path in, a, in fits and starts as she can as a householder, even that, even this agony brings her closer to the cross. In, in this moment of really understanding what that the cross is for her, that the love of God is for her, that this, this blood is shed for her and this is what it means, that even that agony of, of thinking that she's done the wrong thing or is doing the wrong thing all the time, even that agony becomes a way for her to, to draw closer to him. Isn't that just amazing? <laughs> well, it is. And that's what she taught me about my cancer. That's why she's become so, so close to me and important to me. As someone who suffers not from cancer, but from spiritual perfectionism, that was something that <gasps> spoke to it's me It's lethal. Well. <laughs> it's so lethal. It's, it, I don't know if it's worse than cancer or not, but it is lethal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, I know you had a lot of fun researching the emotional, mental, spiritual, cultural landscapes of, of the 14th century, late 14th century, early 15th century, in which Julian lived. As you were doing this, I'd love to hear some about some of the, the fun you had, what you found that surprised you, and whether there was a kind of a main question that was driving you through this research that you were trying to answer in imagining Julian's world so deeply. The most important thing was to cr to create the the right atmosphere around Julian, and I I know uh, in in writing you need to be specific. You can't just say, uh, oh, there were fields over there and a horse over there, and they went for a ride, and 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 there's a church there, and 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 they had a meal. You've got to say what they ate, what the church was made of, what was growing in the field, how they rode, what they wore. And you and it it doesn't you don't want to go into too much detail. And I have read books written by basic people who are basically historians, 
and their novels and and every last detail and all the right words are used and you end up as a reader becoming a bit impatient and frankly a bit bored mm. because it's so busy being very very specific and correct that you lose the story the story is the most important thing but getting a plausible context was was very important so one lovely thing i discovered unexpectedly was that women rode didn't ride side saddle until 1480 something 82 i think when the side saddle was created and the dress to ride side saddle was created hmm. they 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 rode astride unless they were on a palanquin or you know a sort of square box thing like a seat if you were very very grand you would do that or as in the case of Alice the maid she rides pillion and she just sits sideways holding on to the person who's actually riding the horse so so Julian has this wonderful experience of riding which comes from my own experience too. that's a description of something which which happened to me the, the the description of the ride so that was a lovely thing to to discover but then there are also the events of the 14th century and early 15th century which resonate so much with the 21st century oh First yeah the plague they called the pestilence in those days and we all so that feeling of of fear was you could describe it because you'd felt it particularly at the beginning when none of us had a clue where this how this was going to come at you what you know what you could touch what you how you could be with other people or even with yourself there were wars and there were there were the the church was becoming fiercer and fiercer in putting down heresy we have people we call heretics and we cancel them today we've got a real problem about othering people who don't think as we think and it's in it's extraordinarily hard to find a way of softening that and breaking it open and making it no longer so binary so that seemed to me to be resonant as well hmm. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. One thing I've heard people say a lot, one one vocabulary word I like a lot in living church circles is unchurching, that we don't unchurch other Christians, that if if 
if they, unless, unless they're, unless, you know, they're going around like murdering people with axes or, or like stealing tons of money unrepentantly or whatever, if they say, I love the Lord and want to align my life with the gospel, or I want to be a, a real Christian in a difficult, complex world. And, and they don't agree with us theologically. We don't say, no, you're not. No, you can't. No, you won't. Because we just don't know what God will do with them or us, you know. And so that, that was standing out to me a lot as I was reading it, not only as a lover of, of Julian, as a spiritual perfectionist, but also as, as someone who, who does what I do here at the Living Church. This is, su- this is a subject of such interest and importance to me. And this was very much in my mind as I was describing Julian having the church teach her one thing uh, and then seeing in her vision something that was contradictory and that she didn't, she didn't jettison Holy Church, as she called it. And she didn't jettison the vision either. She couldn't deny the vision. God had showed it to her. But Holy Church was Holy Church, and she wasn't going to deny that either. So she she sits with this contradiction, and and that gives birth to the most extraordinary revelation of them all, the 14th revelation, which comes out of this huge question from her. While you're here, God, while I've got you, while these visions are happening, will you answer this question? It's specifically about, about sin, about the nature of sin. Because the church is full of such, so many problems. There are so many problems with structured spirituality and how we end up serving the structure and not the thing for which it was created. Mm. We had a very, very interesting conversation at Westminster Abbey with the head of the Royal Academy of Art, who talked about having an institution that tries to hold art when art by its nature has to break free, has to break free. Of course, the thing about which the church is it's so much bigger, has to be so much bigger. And it's always going to break free from any structure, any human-made structure. But if we didn't have the church, we wouldn't have the custodian of our memories, of the story. We wouldn't have the Gospels, because how would they have been preserved and copied? We wouldn't have liturgy, which endlessly offers the opportunity to reconnect, to find again... God, we wouldn't have this exquisite Eucharistic act, which again brings us, gives us the chance to be open again or receive again the grace of God. And we wouldn't have each other in the way that we do. Institutions make it possible for humans to work with each other without falling out. Mm. It's, it's happened again and again and again in history, certainly in the history of the church. You, you take yourself off because the things become so corrupt you you start again and then you all start arguing with each other and so you have to have a structure and you have to put someone in charge and it's a repeated thing so we can't do without institutions but we can't quite do with them either and, and julian helps that. <laughs> i'm hearing you two song with or without you now playing in the background and i'm thinking too of saint paul's words about marriage when he's he's speaking of the the wife or the bride being washed in the water of the word. And, you know, if the church is this very beloved, very naughty bride of Christ, even as an institution, even as a very mixed visible church of which, you know, I think you and I are a part. So it's like, well, we're part of the problem that there's this, there's this continual, we have to let ourselves be washed by the thing that we absolutely can never systematize, which is the water 
of the word, (laughs) you know, what comes forth from him who loves us. You talked about the problem of historical novels containing so much detail that you get bogged down. But then you have what I call the Bridgerton problem, (laughs) which is that you like to dress up in a certain time period and use the porcelain from that time period or ride the horses of that time period. But everyone just has a modern mentality and no one from that time would actually be able to think or say the things that you're having them think and say. And it's very fun and all that, but it's not, you know, maybe is not satisfying and certainly wasn't, wasn't your project here. But I wonder if you struggled at all with a temptation to anachronism. Maybe put another way, did you have to make some choices as a 21st century author about a medieval figure that were uncomfortable for you? If they were uncomfortable, I had a good look at them. I, I, I made a decision that I wouldn't, I wouldn't sweat about this, that I, it was definitely part of the call was to tell this story into this, into my, this day, our day. And I should say that my doctorate made the point that, uh, that I was going to use the text to answer a question of our day, which is the ecological crisis. Mm. Julian didn't write Revelations of Divine Love in order to solve the ecological crisis, but it's an important contemporary question. It's a great text. It's a great text. So we can ask those deep in questions from, of, uh, from our own day of these great texts, as we would of the Bible, as we would of Shakespeare, as we would of other great writers. So, so I, I already was in that mind frame, you might say, I did not want the the time distance to become a barrier to people understanding what Julian was conveying. And I let myself believe that the way in which I put it in this book is a way that she would be happy with, even though she wouldn't put it in quite those those terms. So absolutely, there are anachronisms. There are things in there which she couldn't she wouldn't have put it and i did i did check words but i i didn't go too mad about it i did i did check to see if a word i remember i fussed over the word bossy because i ri- one of the lay sisters who becomes her friends is definitely bossy and i couldn't i checked it and there wasn't evidence of it being used although it has been used for quite a long time but it wasn't didn't go that far back but i thought there just isn't another word and i'm just going to use it because it's the right word so i i just didn't sweat too much over this. I I didn't want to turn into a pedantic academic. Um, I wanted it to be plausible. I wanted it to be a a good educated guess that historians wouldn't laugh out of. It it needed to work, but it needed to work for the 21st century audience too. Mm. So as someone who has adapted a book into a play, there are some things on the stage that don't work in a novel. And so there are things that some people who are maybe more purist about this are going to be annoyed, but you have to make those choices. And uh, if you have fun while making them or you don't put too much pressure on yourself, um, I find that that's a lot better. You have maybe some more creative freedom. It, it's creative. That's the point. What you're, what you're doing is, 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 it's a, is a creative act. So for example, but, and it was, very, but it was also very prayerful in my case, this was, I was going so deeply into myself to reimagine what Julian had written about because it needed to be alive. So that when, so as we read Revelations of Divine Love, we read a text that is absolutely alive. It was so alive in Julian's writing of it. The visions became alive to her again as she wrote about them. And we 
detect that. That's why it seems to me her text is so compelling. And I, and I needed to write something that had that same compelling sense. So when I came to describing the visions, and this is in the first person, remember, so mm -hmm. it, it, I, I, didn't, I didn't have visions, but honestly, they came from such a deep place in me. And it was a bit like experiencing them from a very, very deep place. It was like deep prayer. And I and I didn't quite know where Claire Gilbert stopped and Julian of Norwich started, or Julian of Norwich stopped and Julian Claire Gilbert started. It was, yeah, I was so involved with her that it it felt as if these were words that were coming from her, even though it's in the twenty first century. And in other words, she wasn't a historical character to me. She's she was right there. And this was your first novel. I mean, this is your first fictional novel. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's other writers of fiction say the same thing. You create a character and it's as if somehow then they're, they're beside you and you're, you're with them. And, but um, more to the point, I want to say that that really came through. Oh, that good. came through. Yeah. It does come through. And there were moments in the book as I was reading that felt really devotional and that I stopped to pray. I mean, I, I stopped and had to take a moment to sit with what I had just read because yes, Claire Gilbert did disappear and it was Julian then and it was her visions and it was Christ. Most importantly, that I felt that I had had some encounter with in some portions of your book. So thank you. Thank you for that. Another thing I thought about as I was reading your book is that Julian had two books that she wrote. One was just after the visions, she was getting them down. And then she wrote a longer version after sitting with these visions for years. Yeah. And they were sort of, you know, a commentary and, and prayerful expansion on what she had seen. And I think I saw something maybe similar for you. I mean, you had initial experience with the work of Julian. You spend years meditating on her work. And then you have this process of writing this book in her voice. So I would imagine that you're sense of relationship with her has changed. You said you felt there were some times where you couldn't tell who was Julian, who was Claire. So if you could visit Julian's cell after now having had this experience of writing a book in her voice, what do you think you'd ask her? The, the revelations are so full already. I feel as though any question, any spiritual questions you might say that I might have, I could, I can look at that text. I can come to that. I can let that text continue to teach me because it's so depthless, if you like. And, and I really thought, because you warned me you were going to ask this question, I really thought about it. And honestly, the question I would want to ask her is, did you write anything else? Did you carry on writing? And that's a question as, as from a writer, because it's something I think about this in the book. I had her not write anything after she'd completed the revelations and got the text sent away from her cell because it was a dangerous text and she knew that it needed to be it needed to be hidden away. And I have her not writing anything more. But I have since thought. I think she would have <laughs> she would have had to write more because she's a writer. So that's what I want to know. Did you write any more? <laughs> Would the follow-up question be, and where is the manuscript yes. hidden? <laughs> yes. Who has it? That that reformation. I mean, I'm an Anglican, but that reformation, oh, the things it destroyed. Oh, Claire. Do you know 
one of the I'm doing a podcast episode on on my time in England. And one of the main themes of this episode, it turns out, is how much stuff got kicked in by the river. And you just don't, I mean, the spiritual landscape of England, the literal landscape, as well as something about the spiritual landscape is reckoning with the Reformation and, and that church war that occurred on your soil. And you're nodding your head, so th- that seems like that resonates with you. Certainly does. And, and I'm married to a Catholic, so we talk about this a lot. And it was really good to hear him describe the Reformation from his point of view, mm. which is a different story from the one I heard. So I, yes, and and honestly, we were these iconoclasts. We were like we we hate the Taliban for destroying wonderful ancient artifacts of religion, and we, that's what this was like. This notion that this was all corrupt and had to be got rid of, and this in, in Julian's time, this was all just beginning. The the Lollards, as they came to be called, were beginning to say, you know, we mustn't worship anything except God Himself, and we must have no images at all. And so they were starting to say these have to be destroyed. So that, you know, the church had good reason to be afraid. And there was a lot. Of, I mean, there was a lot of it. And people do end up, I guess, worshipping images, not 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 the real thing. But I've watched because I go to Catholic Church a lot now. And I've watched how people make devotions in front of a statue of Mary, a statue of Mary that I can't bear because it's, you know, plaster and pink cheeks and, and white. And, and, and it's so tawdry, I might say. But... But the devotion is undeniable, and it's not about it's not about the statue. It's not about the quality of the artwork. It's about the devotion, and that's the same spirit that would have been there in in medieval times. And actually, these beautiful stone statues would have been painted as well. So, it would have been pretty polychromatic in those days. If people have, or if they're big fans, or also if they have never read the Revelations of Divine Love, is there a particular I guess you'd call it a translation because it's from the Middle English. Is there a particular translation or edition that you would particularly recommend? I, to be honest, I would go with the Penguin. I think it's jolly good. I mean, there are others, but yeah, I've always loved the Penguin. One. And if you're very brave and you want to read the Middle English, there are you can find editions of that as well, and you can get those wonderful words like cunning instead of knowledge, and you can sort of soak yourself in that but yeah the penguin edition is lovely soul can be soul can be supple and buxom but but i what i say to people is do have a go with the middle english because it's not difficult and if you read it out loud just almost phonetically you'll find that you're making perfect sense and it is really really lovely so if you do do have a go people should have a go if they if they can (laughs) i agree I've been speaking today with Dr. Claire Gilbert, and we'll have a link to her book, I, Julian, in the show notes today. Claire, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you so much. And those were absolutely wonderful questions. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church. Don't miss our next conversation in two weeks with Dr. Lee Camp of the acclaimed No Small Endeavor podcast about the art and craft of conversation and how we might better connect to other people as Christians and as leaders, both on the clock and off it. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.